you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to IMRU Radio Magazine. The world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender radio show, now including the queer and intersex communities in our mission statement and proudly promoting our allies. Hello, I'm Chloe Corcoran. And I'm Scott Turner Schofield. Scott Turner Schofield is stepping in today for Michael Taylor Gray as he's on vacation. You may know Scott as an actor and transmasculine advocate for our community, and he lives here in Los Angeles. Michael Taylor Gray is still visiting his nephew and his nephew's husband and their two kids, and that's a Thanksgiving. But before he left, he left us a gift. On Storytellers, he checks out the Upright Citizens Brigade Drag Race, Improvised Untucked. And we talked to T. Cooper, director of the new documentary film Man Made. But before all that, we spill the honest tea. Scott, thanks for jumping in today. I really appreciate you being here for Honest Tea. And it's interesting that we are in a space where we are still experiencing historic firsts. Right. This week, our historic first is that a trans woman is the first Rhodes Scholar in the program's 117-year history. Dun, dun, dun. Hera J. Brown is the first transgender woman to be selected for the Rhodes Scholarship program. And we also had two non-binary people selected as Rhodes Scholars this year as well. That's fantastic. Now, I think every time we talk about trans firsts, we have to acknowledge that it's the first openly trans person, right? Because trans people have been in every culture across all time. We can't erase our history. It's just that that's a pretty conservative competition body, right? And I doubt a person could be openly trans, even if they knew they were trans before, right? Right. So knowing Certainly there are trans road scholars <laughs> and being out are two very different things. Yes. I've, for me, I was one of the first out people to win an award back in my hometown. That doesn't mean that somebody wasn't trans and won it before me. So what's cool about Miss Hera Brown's work is that she is studying forced migration and immigration. I actually think this is one of those places where having a trans perspective Though it is not at all the same thing as being somebody who had to do a forced immigration, I think this really sets up Hera to make some connections that will be very helpful for the world at large. An understanding of identity, the way that trans people have understandings of identity and experience of identity in terms of name changes and all the legal things that you have to go through in order to change your identity as a person, I think that this is going to lead to some surprising and really helpful things moving forward. 
Realizing your identity is one thing. Realizing your identity through the state is quite another. Right. And the hoops that people have to jump through and the state's involvement and interaction with somebody else's identity is a theme that you can see through trans issues as well as forced immigration and migration issues. Now, one of the things that really struck me on a personal level was Harris says, I remember growing up with a loving, supportive family with a stable reality and having all that kind of yanked away in an instant. Again, not the same as being forced to leave your country, but what a parallel on some levels that this can have to her work, too. And a level of empathy in the experience that I think researchers certainly need to have in order to be successful. I think the empathy and understanding your work on some level from a personal view is really important and can really only add to the color that you bring to what you're doing too. She says that I knew that there had never been a trans woman selected to the Rhodes Scholar program and that this was an incredible opportunity to show that we as trans women have contributions to offer in a time when many parts of society and our country are trying to suppress the reality of our identities and existence. Knowing that this is a form of validation, not only for my work, but my legitimacy and the legitimacy of my community is breathtaking. This also speaks to something else that can be a little bit difficult in that there's a lot of notoriety that comes along with something like this. And there's also a piece of now you're speaking for the community. Mm. And we talked a little bit today about what it's like to speak for the community and how that there is not... A trans narrative, Mm -hmm. and I'm using air quotes over here like you can see me, (laughs) but there's not a trans narrative. There's not a singular trans narrative. Everybody has a different story and everybody has had a different experience. And I wonder for other people if there's discomfort or if there's comfort and power in that. Well, I think pretty much anybody, whether you're LGBTQIA, whatever letter that you represent, you have been the one person who is that person in your family or your classroom or your workplace, right? And so we all understand the burden of representation. We understand that sometimes we're the ones who get asked. And this is for everybody who's different in any kind of way. That's what happens to us. We become the go-to. What is it like to be this or that? And it's very difficult sometimes when your success means the community's success. But this person's really smart, right? The way that they said it even, recognizing that this is a validation and that the validation of this one person can lead to a legitimacy at large, recognizing that we are individuals inside of a bigger piece. And when we are early on, when we're trailblazers, that one person's success can help a community's success in a big way. So you touched on something there in The thought about legitimacy, which also lends itself to authenticity, which lends itself to our next story this week, which is a throwback to the actress Scarlett Johansson. Scarlett Johansson in the news again. So she has come out to say that she mishandled a transgender casting controversy in 2018. Scott, can you give us a little bit of background on that? Absolutely. I experienced that. So back in 2018, there was talk of a film called Rub and Tug, which was going to be a based on a true story of a person who is widely understood now to be transgender. It's difficult because it was back in the 70s before transgender had, you know, was a word that was in wide usage. A lot of people felt like this person was actually a butch lesbian, but that is exactly how transgender erasure happens, right? Mm -hmm. So what people who knew this person, and I actually know someone who personally knew this person. And her note to me, this is my good friend Joni, she said, oh, he was a total man. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely a man and a man that you did not want to mess with. 
So we have to err on the side of people having authentic lives and not erase them. And so when Scarlett Johansson announced that she would be playing this role, there was kind of a twofold thing that went on. First, Scarlett Johansson has had some trouble with playing roles that communities did not feel was appropriate for her to play before. And also, we were in the middle of a big conversation about transgender actors playing transgender roles. Now, don't come for me on this, okay? This is not about artists being artists. This is about an economy and an industry. Transgender people do not get roles. We cannot just be unemployed like every other actor is unemployed. We are unemployed for the reasons of our being trans, which is bias. Okay, that is what is going on in Hollywood. It is still going on in Hollywood. And the very first step of allowing transgender people to play transgender roles and not having cisgender people, who are most people, not transgender people, right, play those roles, as has happened over and over again in roles such as the Dallas Buyers Club. I mean, going back and back to the world, according to GARP, we have the Danish girl, right? Boys don't cry. We have examples of cisgender people playing transgender roles over and over and over again. And what's really interesting is they all win Oscars for it. The more marginalized the person you play, the more prizes you get to make you more privileged. That is something that Hollywood does. And it has become well known that if you play a transgender role, you will get an award. So... From our perspective, we saw Scarlett Johansson gunning for an Oscar off of our backs, right? right? At a time when we were having a conversation. So the community came back about it. I participated in a viral YouTube video of trans men auditioning for Scarlett Johansson roles. Fantastic. Which was really fun. And also Variety and The Hollywood Reporter all got behind us and had transgender creators all over Hollywood talking about why this was wrong. And at first she apologized for it. The timeline on this, the TikTok, is complicated. So first what happened was we had the announcement. The next thing that happened was we had her publicist, which is important to note is not Scarlett Johansson. That's Scarlett Johansson's publicist, come with a very backhanded and dismissive quote. Do you have that quote? I do. Tell them that they can be directed to Jeffrey Tambor, Jared Leto, and Felicity Huffman's reps for comment. Tambor, Leto, and Huffman, who are cisgender, have played transgender characters, and Tambor won multiple awards for his work in the Amazon series Transparent, while Huffman was nominated for an Oscar for her role in the 2005 film Transamerica, and Leto won an Oscar for his performance in Dallas Buyers Club in 2013. So for everyone listening who thought I was full of conjecture just then, proving my point. Thank you, Chloe. So that really dismissive, hurtful thing that that publicist said really fanned the flames. Then Scarlett Johansson herself well, through a publicist again, but there was a letter apologizing for it. And so in The Hollywood Reporter, I came out and said, look, this is great. People make mistakes. And when you apologize for something, that's awesome. Then, <laughs> dun, dun, dun. then, and again, this is the hard part of the media, right? What happened next was there was an article that came out where it sounded like Scarlett Johansson was reneging her apology. But then Scarlett Johansson said that it wasn't actually that, that she was taken out of context and those quotes weren't real. And now we have this. Okay, so here's, again, Scott Turner Schofield, king of nuance, all right? We have to talk about the fact that this is an A-list celebrity. Being an A-list celebrity is a very weird and difficult place. It is not something that most of us know. It is a place where a lot of people 
refuse to give you a sense of reality by telling you no or by educating you when you need it. And it is a place where there's like no consequence. She went on to make millions of dollars and just continue to be have a great career, right? Marriage Story is doing really well now, all those things. And it didn't matter what happened to us. So she could have just done all of those things and just decided, you know what? This is too difficult a conversation. I'm over being attacked for it. I'm just never going to talk about it again. And it could have been like that. So I actually do have to give her props for continuing to stay in it. There's a great way of doing an apology that I recently learned that I, I felt was really important. I think it's helpful to share here. Please do. Claim when you are called out. Center yourself. You're not being attacked. You're a good person. This is about your behavior and stopping harm to others. Listen. Don't interrupt or think of ways to defend yourself. Focus on learning what was harmful and being empathetic and compassionate. Check. Acknowledge or apologize. Instead of explaining why you did it, acknowledge what happened and apologize if needed or requested for the harm you caused. I, the I in claim, is inquire. If they consent and have the time and the resources, ask what you could have done wrong. Now, for most trans people, for a situation like this, you could just read the news <laughs> and not have us have to explain it to you, which is annoying. And then finally, moving forward, the best apologies changed behavior. If they give you reasonable recommendations and amends, do them. Don't do the harm again. Use this experience to help others learn, too. So I appreciate Scarlett Johansson for being out about this whole thing and for doing the hard work and stumbling in public over and over again. And hopefully... That'll stop happening. Yeah. And just so our listeners know, what Miss Johansson said was, in hindsight, I mishandled that situation. I was not sensitive. I wasn't totally aware of how the trans community felt about those three actors playing and how they felt in general about cis actors playing transgender people. I was uneducated. And that's what we want is people to come to the table to be educated and to learn and to grow. And hopefully that is what is happening here behind a veil that we do not have access to. Exactly. Now, there was one thing that was unfortunate that happened with Robin Tug. When Scarlett Johansson walked away from it, the film collapsed. And then the trans community came under fire for being sensorial in some kind of way, like it was our fault again. What could have happened is they could have found the right trans actor to play that role. And Scarlett Johansson could have played the very, I've read the script, the very meaty role of his girlfriend. Okay, for people who want to say, no, we need a big name to play the thing. You can have lots of big names all around somebody and launch the career and do the work of visibility for a transgender actor and for the community at large. So what I would love to see is for Scarlett Johansson to pick this up again and do it right this time. I want to see that movie. I think all of us do. I agree. I would watch it. Scarlett, come back to it. Come back, Scarlett. So we have this string of authenticity running through our conversations today. And there is another article with another celebrity this week. Jamie Lee Curtis has come out to say that we should be outing LGBTQI politicians who are causing direct harm to the LGBTQI community. This is a loaded statement in a loaded idea. There's a lot of, again, nuance to this. So Scott, you're perfect for this. What <laughs> okay. do you think? All right. So let's look at this. First, we have to think about Jamie Lee Curtis. Jamie Lee Curtis has for a long time been an LGBTQIA activist. She's been saying the right things and doing the right things for a very long time, even when it was unpopular. So, okay, Jamie, I will listen to you talk about this and have an opinion. Because sometimes it's like, do we care what a cisgender or heterosexual person thinks about our issues? Right. Right. Like, is it your place? But she's using a platform, right? And she's using it responsibly, I think. Now to the responsibility of outing another person. First of all, in a trans context, you are painting a target on that person's back. 
Almost literally. Really. When you out a trans person, you don't know who in their lives has what opinions, and this is what gets people killed. Okay, it is not being dishonest to live your life as the man or woman you knew you were always supposed to be. People fight to the death (laughs) to be the men or women they know that they are. It is not the same thing as a gay man being self-hating and hurting other gay men through use of political power. That is not the same thing. So number one, don't ever out a trans person for ever any reason and especially not a celebrity doing it. Then we get to the nuance of the self-hating gays using their self-hatred consciously or unconsciously to harm the gay community, LGBTQ at large, right? Right. Okay, we see what this is. As someone who's far in their developmental process of being LGBTQ, right, I can say this is something that happens. There are people who are not out to themselves. That's a long process for some people, right? And the self-hatred that is funneled into us through our culture at large, this is a process for some people. But then when they have political power, is it the right thing to do to do that? What do you think? That's a great question, and I'm glad you asked it because I'm now stammering to give an answer. And (laughs) it's important to think about because these closeted LGBTQI politicians, the reason that people may know that they are part of that community or our community is because they've done something along those lines that would... They've shown up at a circuit party, right? Right. They've let it be known in some circles that they are part of that community. But then to go back and use that political power against the LGBTQI community and wield it in whatever ways you can to inflict harm, to inflict direct violence on the LGBTQI community. I talked about this this week with um, a former journalist back home My firm belief is that hateful language leads to hateful acts. Absolutely. I believe hateful language and violent language leads to violence against LGBTQI people, and I will not waver on this. It creates a space. It lessens our humanity. Mm -hmm. And when we're not seen as human, you can do anything you want to us. I was a youth who attempted suicide directly because of politicians using anti-LGBTQ language when I was a kid. So I completely agree with you on this. This is real stuff. This is not an abstract thing. You just heard it directly from Scott. These things matter. And I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, I feel weird not having a firm stance on this, but I think anything we can do to stop violence against our community may be a good thing for us to consider. I just go back to the Albert Einstein quote about how you can't stop a problem using the same level of consciousness that created it. So I feel like if we're going to just out people, no matter how horrible they are, it's like a horizontal justice that might feel good. But is it changing things or doing anything better in the end? If you're a hateful, spiteful, awful politician, I think probably the best thing about you is that you're gay. That's going to actually humanize me, you to me, right? I guess for me, it all comes down to impact, which you just alluded to. If we're not going to make an impact through these actions, what are we really accomplishing through doing it? Look, outing somebody is not a good thing. Let me be clear about that. As Scott said, it invites violence upon people. Do not out a trans person. And don't out anybody. Don't out anybody. It's not your business. But I will stick with that. And that's The Honest Tea. The Woman Behind the Camera, coming up now on The Rainbow Minute. Photojournalist Frances Benjamin Johnston was certainly daring, not just because of her subject matter, but because she entered the field of photography when it was like a club for men only. 
As a young woman in the late 1800s, she got her hands on one of George Eastman's newfangled lightweight cameras, and by the turn of the century had her own studio in Washington, D.C., taking portraits of famous people like Susan B. Anthony and Booker T. Washington. Her own self-portrait showed her as a new woman, skirts hiked to the knee, holding a cigarette in one hand and a beer stein in the other. In another, she posed in front of a bicycle dressed as a man with a false mustache. Mind you, these were Victorian times, but then again, flouting social conventions was her stick. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Mary Gay Hutcherson. Hi, I'm Amanda Burse, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. IMRU, IMRU. My mama told me when I was young, we are all born superstars. She rolled her hair and put her lipstick on in the glass of her boudoir. There's nothing wrong with loving who you are, she said, cause he made you perfect, babe. So hold your head up, boy, and you'll go far. Listen to me when I say. Welcome back. I'm Chloe Corcoran. And I'm Scott Turner Schofield. In the documentary, Man Made, director T. Cooper has used the world's only all-trans bodybuilding competition as the window into a kaleidoscope of trans male stories. Man Made takes us into the heart of transgender male culture, revealing unexpected truths about gender, masculinity, humanity, and love. Four trans men who, like T. Cooper, the film's director, were born and raised female, take a variety of life paths towards stepping on stage at TransFitCon, the only all-transgender bodybuilding competition in the world held in Atlanta, Georgia. Man Made is a character-driven, intimate, and riveting verite-style competition film, but also a unique social justice narrative. It speaks to the ways in which we all choose to define and reshape ourselves, both figuratively and literally. T. Cooper, welcome to the show, T. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So, T, when I first heard about this movie, this full-length documentary about trans male bodybuilders, I thought, wow, that's pretty niche. And then I saw it. I want to ask you, what caused you to to make this film? Yeah, well, um, I guess when I came down to Atlanta for the first time and moved there, um, lived there part-time between there and New York. I heard about this competition, which actually took place, the very first one ever, and also the first one of this competition, took place downtown Atlanta at, like, a tiny little bar, uh, bar, like a gay bar, and there was, you know, maybe just three or four guys up on stage. And when I saw images of it, I was just so drawn to really just, like, the fact that wherever they were in their journeys, whether that was a personal, emotional, physical, or even transitional journey, they were just, like, welcomed and accepted and celebrated on stage. And, like, they were just so proud and so many different 
versions of masculinity and versions of really humanity were accepted and celebrated and rewarded for all that hard work, whatever it was, wherever it brought them. And so that's really the kernel of it right there. Very much a trans experience that we wish would happen, right? Like, wouldn't it be nice if we all got applauded and and taken care of for all of the hard work that we do? You know, I think another one of those instant biases that comes that came up for me in my mind was, boy, bodybuilding, right? Like in this world that we live in with people thinking about toxic masculinity all the time, right? I was kind of worried going in that it was going to be like Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of dudes, right? But it couldn't have been more different. I haven't ever cried at a documentary. And here I was inside the experience of these four guys that you that you followed and then more than four. So tell us about the subjects and tell us about that process of getting into their lives in the really beautiful way that you did. Yeah, so thanks. So I'm so glad to hear that you cried. Um, we're here for that. Um, <laughs> basically, you know, that first competition was tiny. It felt very ad hoc. And so in the year between that very first one and the second one, a lot of trans guys, and I use that term super widely, as just explained, that everyone was welcome if they consider themselves a trans man. They're welcome on stage. So it kind of grew because people heard about it, and they started training, and they wanted to compete, and they signed up. So by the time the second year rolled around, there was like maybe 12, 13 guys. And in that time, you know, I started doing research and talking to guys and kind of just figuring out all the different paths of the various contestants who were coming to meet on stage. And so when it came to picking who to follow, for the documentary, obviously I wanted a diversity in experience, not only just trans experience, but also racially, socioeconomically, familial support, geography. So the guys in the film, the four main subjects, Mason, Reese, Dom, and uh, Kenny, all come from just really different places. Uh, They're not all from the coast, which is, I think, when we think of trans life, we think of New York and L.A. and San Francisco. Most of them are from the middle of the country. Mason's from Ohio. Kenny's from pretty much rural Arkansas. And uh, Reese is from Atlanta. And Dom is from St. Paul, Minnesota. And, you know, like, I just, it was really, um, it was hard not to focus on everybody. But when you're making a film, you want people to be able to focus and be able to follow folks' stories. So it was really hard to cut some people out who had incredibly moving stories. But, you know, I didn't want all folks who were married or all folks who were you know, white or all folks who were black or all folks who were parents or whatnot. So I really tried to get a cross-section like Reese as a young parent. And in the film, you see him. I don't know. I, I just think it's important to see trans people parenting. And, mm-hmm. and you do. Reese also actually became homeless after the first competition portrayed in the film and on his way to the next competition. And that's an experience you don't get to see very much of is a trans man of color on the streets, literally trying to find a place to live each night and finding himself unwelcome in shelters for women and unwelcome in shelters for them. So he was a really important subject for me to stick with. Mason, too, he's the one from Cleveland, Ohio, married, kind of a middle American existence, and he's also someone who does look like a little Arnold, and he credits bodybuilding with saving his life. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. those prejudices that you're talking about kind of arising, you know, for me, I say, yeah, look at this guy. Working out is his life. It literally saved his life. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he wouldn't be here if it weren't for the sport where he could sort of change his body before he could get on testosterone. This was a way for him to feel just even a modicum of control over mm-hmm. his body and what it looked like. 
T, as a transgender woman, I've noticed that there's a lot of vulnerability in the experience of being trans, and people are really opening themselves up to you. And I feel like there's that extra layer of vulnerability of getting up and showing off your body on stage. Can you speak to what that was like for most of the contestants? Yeah, I mean, what's so interesting is that actually, it's, it's funny, that when I first saw the competition, my first thought was, dude, I would never do that. Even if I looked like, you know, a guy like Mason, if you see the film, you'll know what I'm talking about. I never could do that. And so, yeah, there's something that was fascinating about that for me that I was drawn to. And I think that being trans as a creator, as a storyteller, as a director, I think that was a large part of why these guys ended up in the film is because they... Obviously, I'm coming from a space of what I like to think of as inside-out storytelling, right? I'm not outside the huddle trying to figure out what's going on inside. I'm literally in the middle of it with them. And while I might not be a bodybuilder per se, I do come to it with an understanding of what it means to evolve and change as a trans person, but also just as a human, because I think the metaphor of bodybuilding is so apt for all of human life and all of humanity. Mm -hmm. We all grow and change and adapt and, quote, transition throughout our lives, whether we're trans or not. And so I think that that kind of inside space that I was coming to is, is what allowed them to open up and be vulnerable. And by no means was anything included that they weren't comfortable with. And, and we, we were very clear about discussions about that. And it's so funny, too, because trans storytelling has changed so much recently. If you think about a, a period not long ago when it was like verboten to include photographs, right, of, of folks before transition, so to speak. But what's so crazy is like open up any of these guys, you know, Instagram pages and literally every few days there's a quote before and quote after photo. And that's something that like folks of my generation, you know, that would make me very uncomfortable personally. But, you know, I would literally go to their houses and they'd be like photos everywhere. And they're like, check this shit out, you know, um, <laughs> or, sorry. you know, they're like, check this out. And so for me, those kinds of things were only included if and when they were given to me just freely. Like I, I didn't ask for anything. I didn't ask to be there in these incredibly vulnerable moments, but just in the course of their lives unfolding, they were comfortable with having me. And I just feel really lucky to have been there. It seems like you didn't bring any biases onto this project. You just really let the stories unfold. How long did it take you to film all of this? We're down for a documentary film, especially a multi-subject one, especially a multi-subject one where you're filming people who won't ultimately make the final cut. Yeah, you just have to be down for whatever happens. And that's a great way of putting it. Like there was no preconception of what was going to happen or, or not going to happen. Which I and think I can happen a lot, honestly. About a year and a half. About a year and a half to document all those subjects, yeah. I would say that's about right. You know, I, I think, unfortunately, what cis people miss when they're documenting our lives is they think that there is a way that it goes, that you transition, that you, you know, that transition looks like X, Y, and Z. And th they put that sort of like, well, where do we get that piece of the story from? As opposed to just like really letting it unfold. And you, I think part of the beauty of the nuance of this film and the sculpture of this film. It just kind of has like a light touch as far as the trans specific stuff. As a trans person, I know that our lives are not summed up completely by our transitions, right? We have, that's literally like this yeah, tiny fraction right. of our lives, and yet this storytelling right. focuses so much on the transition exactly. itself. Yeah, so and let what me... makes us different. Literally, every frame is what makes us different. And on this, I'm not going into it with that. I'm not entering their lives like, hmm, what makes them different? You know what I mean? I, I'm looking for what makes them human. You weren't hammering out any points about what it means to be transgender or any particular one way that it means to be trans. What's going on now for your subjects? 
you know, a lot has happened, and, and you get real wrapped up in people's lives when you, you know, live with them for a year and a half and then another year on festival tours. So Mason, for instance, he and his wife literally just had a baby last week, and that was something that they were trying to do for a long time. Reese, the one who I said had experienced homelessness in between his competitions, he has found stable housing. He actually, he was not accepted in his mother's home. His son, however, had a space there, even though Reese was not welcome. And so that was kind of, well, I would say actually that was much of the source of his homelessness. But he is living with his grandmother now, and his grandfather had died so that he's kind of able to make use of, you know, the space and also taking care of his grandmother and mm. offering that to them. Kenny, Kenny, someone in the film who we see on stage before he undergoes any sort of hormone treatment or surgeries or anything, and um, in the course of the film... He starts testosterone, and since then, he's just his journey has continued. He's at top surgery. He is still working out. He's open, kind of like a trans-friendly, gender non-conforming friendly physical training mm-hmm. <laughs> company. And uh, what am I doing? Oh, Dom, Dominic. Oh, wow. He's Dom's another great character who I, did, I guess I didn't mention. He's the one from St. Paul, Minnesota, who um, he's like really figured out his life and who he is. And what's so lovely is that in the film itself, and this goes off of kind of what we were talking about earlier, but, you know, in the film itself, yes, we see him having top surgery. And that was a huge milestone for him because we saw him compete on stage and take third place in the first competition pre-top surgery. And then he has surgery between competitions. And so we see him get up back on stage post-top surgery. That was a huge kind of so emotional for me, for him, for everyone. But what's so cool about, like I said, this kind of non-trans focused storytelling, this lens is that in the course of the film, he also located his biological mother via Facebook for the first time ever and met her. And, you know, I kind of like like the pieces of his life falling into place as much through finding her as any of the, the transition related stuff. And that was so much about him becoming a man and becoming a human and becoming an adult. And so, yeah, I think once those pieces fell into place, like his life just kind of blossomed. He's doing great. That's fantastic. Well, so you've managed to create, again, from the inside out, a story that, as a fellow trans man, I think is a beautiful representation and that kind of going to the very particular makes a very universal story. I think this is a film that I wish people would watch to understand the transmasculine experience better and just to really kind of get a look at what good storytelling looks like between and among and for and by trans people. So thanks for that. Good job. Yeah. I appreciate that. I think that exactly what you're saying is why we as trans folks should be trusted with telling our own stories. Because when you allow us to and you trust us, the stories come out, like you said, in a way that just is so much more universal and is incredibly specific, but shines a light on what it means to be human. And and I think that's why we go to documentary films is because we want to see these worlds that have never been explored. And through that exploration, you see that you're literally just looking at yourself. T, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I really appreciate it. And what you just said really resonated with me in that we need to tell our stories and control our own narratives because people need to get to know us. And T, I really appreciate you making this film. I cried at the trailer, so I jumped in pretty (laughs) early on that. So thank you so much. And we will put in a plug about watching it online as well. Awesome. You guys can, um, uh, can find it on Amazon, iTunes, Vimeo, and Google. And T, where can people find you on social media? 
uh, I'm terrible at social media, so I hope they don't. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, we have a man-made doc, uh, at man-made doc, on both Twitter and Instagram. And uh, the Instagram is very lively. Uh, but we have a website, manmadedoc.com, and, you know, it's like it keeps up to date with all the festivals, all the awards. Also, you can buy man-made merch. We have these super soft T-shirts, which help support the film. Thank you very much, T. Cooper. Awesome. Thank Thanks, you, T. Thanks, y'all. Have a great day. You yeah. too. Bye. Man Made is available to rent or purchase on Amazon or iTunes. For more information, browse to manmadedoc.com. The captured images of Francis Benjamin Johnston, coming up now on The Rainbow Minute. After a distinguished career as a photojournalist, Francis Benjamin Johnston bequeathed over 20,000 photographs to the Library of Congress in 1952. She's best known for photographing the rich and famous, but her work speaks of an inquisitive eye, resulting in artful images of coal miners and iron workers, female nudes, world fairs, and even historic architecture. Early in her career with lighting trickery of her own, she also captured breathtaking photographs of Mammoth Cave. As official White House photographer for five presidents, Johnston snapped the last photo of President McKinley at the 1901 Pan American Exposition just minutes before he was assassinated. While Johnston never married, letters indicate her romantic attachment to another woman, Maddie Edwards Hewitt, with whom she lived and worked for six years. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Mary Gay Hutcherson. Hello, I'm Barney Frank, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. IMRU, IMRU. My mama told me when I was young, we are up on superstars. She rolled my hair and put my lipstick on in a glass of her boudoir. There's nothing wrong with loving who you are She said, cause he made you perfect, babe So hold your head up, girl, and you'll go far Listen to me when I say I'm beautiful in my way Cause God makes no mistakes I'm on the right track, baby I was born this way Don't have yourself in regret Just love yourself and you said I'm on the right track I was born this way Ooh, there ain't no other way Baby, I was born this way Baby, I was born this way Ooh, there ain't no other way Baby, I was born this way Baby, I was born this way Welcome back. I'm Chloe Corcoran. And I'm Scott Turner Schofield. On tonight's Storytellers, Michael Taylor Gray catches up with the cast of Upright Citizens Brigade Drag Race Improvised Untucked. Within our ever-expanding LGBTQI community, there are many heartfelt, challenging, intriguing, and entertaining stories to tell. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and this is Storytellers. I'm here at the Upright Citizens Brigade on Franklin in Hollywood. Who am I speaking to? Hi, I am Basic Bitch. And I'm here to do a crunchy drag show. Tell me that your earthly name and how you got involved with this theater and what's happening tonight 
that I'm about to be thrown into. I am Mono Agapian. I just started doing improv in college, and then I came out to L.A. in 2008, and I had been to UCB many times before in New York, and I knew I wanted to do stuff here. And it just so happened when I came here, there wasn't a big queer scene. There was no, almost no queer scene. And sort of over the years made it gayer and gayer and gayer until we pitched a version of Drag Race, which is mostly called UCB Drag Race, a.k.a. Bad Drag Race, because we celebrate being bad and having fun as opposed to being polished and cute. LGBTQI plus community. Where are you in that landscape? I think I am um, gay, and I think I'm very gender expressive. My drag is an extension of the way I like to express myself because I I felt very estranged by my male gender, and I like doing drag, but I don't think I provide illusion. So I've always just enjoyed being gender expressive and having fun mixing the two into a Frankenstein. Here at UCB, the biggest focus is you are already such a rich character, and we can't have those authentic jokes unless we get you on the stage, which is why I was very lucky in that our diversity program naturally lent itself to people being interested because we still preach this, and we were telling people, we need you on the stage. We don't need a character. We don't need Target Lady. We need you to come to the stage because only you can tell the jokes that are truthful to you. And I think that appealed to a lot of people who were sick of being a character they told they had to be to get on X variety show, as opposed to just being like, just be yourself, be honest, instead of having to be the caricature that some comedy diversity outlets can push. Who am I speaking to? Adam Winnie, but today she's Diabetti. Diabetti. <laughs> I love it. You are ravishing. Now tell us about how you got involved with UCB and with Drag Race. Well, UCB, I lived in Kansas City for most of my life and up until two years ago. And I saw like a lot of shows with UCB alum. And when I heard about the theater, I was like, okay, I want to go to Hollywood and I want to learn from the people that went to this school because it feels like there's something special here. Turns out there was. And I absolutely love drag. I've been obsessed with drag for too many years, even before Drag Race. And so when I found out they had their own competition, it felt like the perfect time to bring her out. How important do you think it is that, that we are expanding our alphabet within our community? And how does that 
affect your life? I think it's incredibly important. I have a lot of genderqueer and non-binary friends. 30 years ago, we had worse sexism problems than we do now, and even now is bad. We need to constantly be working on socially including everybody that asks to be included. Do you have anything up your capped sleeves for tonight? I have three different looks, two different other pairs of heels, three more wigs to try on. I have a lot I prepared tonight. What do you want people to get from Drag Race? What can you do to attract them here? It is such a funny medium that not enough people are like paying attention to. And it's, for me, what I love about drag is it's such an aggressive way to tackle queer art in a way that people aren't used to. I mean, basically queer people do horrifically horrifying macho stuff almost. And it's such a juxtaposition I find so interesting and necessary. It's Michael Taylor Gray with IMRU, and I have a wonderful, happy homemaker in front of me. Would you tell us who you are? Hi, my name is Jet Armstrong, but my drag name is Miss Honey Butter Biscuit. Tonight, do you expect to be in the top or the bottom? Well, normally I'm a bottom, but I expect to be a top tonight. We will look for that to happen. Now, what brought you to UCB? I've been an actress for quite a while, and I just, I found myself being drawn to more more fun, more free, more comedic work. And I decided to take an improv class my junior year of high school last year. And then I just fell in love, and I've been taking classes and working here since. Tell us your mortal out-of-drag name again. Jet Dean Armstrong. What do you hope to, to bring to UCB to elevate the queer story here? Well, I actually grew up in the South in a city called Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I am a trans queen here tonight. So hopefully, like, in, in I guess in the queer comedy canon and in the queer narrative, I want to provide a unique perspective involving kind of that intersection between being raised in the South and being somebody who is gender nonconforming or transgender. So uh, I kind of want to explore that and explore and share just how hilarious, humiliating, and interesting it is to be a queer person from the South. As a trans woman, are you getting yourself involved in other areas of UCB as far as in a training yeah. program? I'm a recipient of the Upright Citizens Brigade Diversity Scholarship. So that has just been like such a blessing in my life and has made this possible for me. So I've gotten involved with that. I was in the UCB Diversity Showcase in 2019, which was a lot of fun. I was a sketch performer in that one. It's just given me a really great platform, and I've tried to get involved in as many ways as I possibly can. Well, thank you so much for, for being a part of this, for sharing your story. Remind us again who you are, where we are, and what's happening tonight. My name is Jet Armstrong, also known as Miss Honey Butter Biscuit, and we are at Bad Drag Race at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater Los Angeles on Franklin, competing in Bad Drag Race Episode 1. It's Michael Taylor Gray with IMRU, and I'm here with a lovely young lady at the UCB Upright Citizens Brigade here in Franklin and Hollywood. Why don't you tell us your name, why we're here, what's going on, and what do you hope to get out of this evening? Yes, hello, I am Billy Eyelash. Tonight we're here at UCB Franklin, and we are performing for UCB Bad Drag Race. I think my goal for the night is to keep my wig on my head. <laughs> How do you plan on doing that? Lots of super glue, lots and lots of glue, very toxic, but yes. Super glue from your wig to your head. Directly to my scalp, thank you for asking. So out of drag, what is your mortal earthly name? My mortal earthly name is Derek Mari. 
And I love that you find that amusing. Now tell us, Derek, how did you get involved with UCB and how do you see your involvement in expanding the queer story that's being told with this theater and the company? I moved to Los Angeles to pursue filmmaking, writing and directing films, and I've always been interested in comedy. I was writing sketch comedy and then I discovered UCB and started casting a lot of the actors who were up and coming in the community and they were all geniuses in my mind and I really admired them, worked with them a lot in my personal projects, and then I started taking improv classes here at the theater and fell in love. And it's all I do anymore. I still write and direct films, but I've just submerged myself in this culture, in this community. And I've discovered, not necessarily UCB, but the indie comedy scene in Los Angeles, there's not enough queer representation. I was doing a lot of indie comedy shows where we would be, me and a male scene partner would be a couple. You know, they would gift me as the wife, Sharon, Samantha, Bethany. And I would say, oh, I understand now. So then coming to UCB and seeing shows like Queer Worlds and UCB's Bad Drag Race and seeing all this amazing queer representation, I was like, oh, this is where I can shine and be myself. Where do you fall in line in the LGBTQI plus landscape? I am gay. I've recently allowed myself to say queer. I've always viewed queer as something I had to earn as a label because it feels it feels like it requires a knowledge of the community and, and of other people and what it means to hold that title. And so I've recently been thinking, you know, that's important. If I want to be a voice in the comedy scene or whatever for queer representation, then I need to understand what that means. My name is Billy Eyelash. This is UCB's Bad Drag Race. We are a monthly show at UCB Franklin in Los Angeles. Our first show is November 1st, and our next show, it's a four-month run. Our next show is December 6th, and then January, and then February. And don't just come to Drag Race. Come to every show. Every show is so fun. Are you guys excited to see the new crop of queens? Thanks for tuning in. I'm Michael Taylor Gray with IMRU on KPFK Radio. And you've been listening to Storytellers. What's your story? Michael Taylor Gray, thank you for that wonderful story. It's interesting to see how these things come together. And by the way, three of the eight drag queen contestants are transgender. The drag race shows continue on Friday, December 6th at midnight, Friday, January 10th at midnight, and the finale is Saturday, February 15th at 10 p.m., where the winner will be announced. It looks like we've got enough time for a last word. Tonight, that's an audio essay from Peter Dell. I remember feeling like I needed it. Maybe it was the action of going to buy the Playgirl, which would finally prove to myself, really show my core, that I was gay and that it wasn't just curiosity. But I do know it was the first thing I ever did out of my own desire. Buying the magazine was the first time I allowed myself to fantasize without shame.
We were on our summer vacation in Calistoga. It was the first family trip without my brother. My dad, my mom, and I took the drive up the coast to the northern California city. It was the second or third day of the trip that I realized I needed the magazine. I remember thinking, now is the perfect opportunity to do it. You're out of town. No one you know is here. I don't remember anymore how I convinced them that I should go alone to the Santa Rosa Mall, this 13-year-old boy. But I was both resourceful and paranoid, and somehow I made it work. We would go Saturday, the last day of our trip. So there I was, this 13-year-old gay kid with three hours to kill in this strange city at this great mall with 50 stores. The only thing I could think about, though, was that damned magazine, the one with the hairy-chested fireman on the covers I'd seen as I passed the newsstand. straight for the B. Dalton on the first floor, the one right by the entrance. Too many people. The three guys browsing at the magazine rack wouldn't leave. I cut my losses, moved on. Walden Books, second floor, next to the hot dog on a stick. Magazine rack, penthouse, hustler, playboy. No, playgirl, not anywhere. This store's empty too, damn, need to move on. Back to B. Dalton. Empty now. Only the clerk and me. He's reading something, not paying attention. I reach up quickly and grab the magazine, roll it into the tightest tube that I can. I take it to the counter for the final, brutal part, the part I've envisioned all week, the part which has kept me away from buying Playgirl for years. I set the magazine on the counter in front of the clerk, face down. The clerk, a pudgy guy three times my age, picks up the magazine, turns it over, and looks for the price. Then he saw the title. He looked at me, looked at the title, looked at me, looked at the title. His head didn't move, only his eyes. He frowned. Then I said the line I had been rehearsing all week, the line that was supposed to take away all the awkwardness, the words which would make everything seem so normal. Funny what they make you buy on a scavenger hunt. He didn't buy it, not for a second. The frown didn't become a smile like I had pictured. If anything, it deepened. Our eyes met and neither of us moved. We both knew the truth. Or maybe only he did. The moment broke. He looked down to scan the magazine into the cash register, and I realized I could breathe again. I sucked in air like a drowning man surfacing. 
he was going to go along with me. He wasn't going to call the cops or, worse yet, my parents. My scavenger hunt plan hadn't worked. Human kindness had prevailed. I paid the man and thanked him. He never said a word to me. As I grabbed the opaque bag, he smiled a distant, polite smile that screamed, It's your life, kid. I spent the remaining two hours, 45 minutes, in a stall in the upstairs men's room, reading the Playgirl, and, yes, looking at the pictures of naked men. The editor's column that month was addressed to gay men who she said comprised 10% of the Playgirl readership. And I knew now that I wasn't part of the other 90%. Well, that's the end of our show. We know you have choices on your radio dial and appreciate you spending time with us. Thank you. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, and director of distribution, Anne Sparkle, Vash Bodie. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you're a web designer, social media expert, or just interested in LGBTQI community affairs and would like to volunteer with IMRU, email volunteer at imruradio.org. A little reminder, you can always hear our weekly show posted at kpfk.org. And you can also listen to our podcast, where we'll start presenting longer interviews and content too bodacious to broadcast. And if you want to see us, be sure to check out our promos on IMRU Radio Podcast on YouTube. Good night. Good night. Good night.